Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Listeners, welcome back to Barry Motives. We're so glad that you've decided to join us and to celebrate Valentine's Day with us. Yeah, Kristen's got a Valentine's Day case for us, but it's not the type of Valentine's that you would want to enjoy. I'm excited to hear this case. Then let's see how they spent Valentine's Day. Okay, is it actually on Valentine's Day? There is a significant part that happens on Valentine's Day. Ooh, what a dirtbag! Yeah. Valentine's Day is supposed to be a nice time. That's I'm just right. assuming that it's a guy too. By the way. <laughs> Well, you are correct. <laughs> We're talking about a male dirtbag today. And so along that lines, I have a new murder term for you. Ooh. Have you heard of axoricide? Axoricide? Yep. Like the axoricidosaurus? <laughs> not a dinosaur. <laughs> that would not be a dinosaur that you'd want to be around because axoricide is the act of killing one's wife. Oh, and that is what today's dirtbag does do. I totally did not know that there was a term for that. Yeah, there's a specific one for killing your mother, your father, your wife, your husband. And so this is the one for when a man murders his wife. Hmm. It's good to always learn something new, I think, <laughs> even if it is about murder. <laughs> I'm just envisioning, like, in my defense, I'd be like, no, I don't want to be a victim of a suicide. Stop. <laughs> and that would give them pause enough to be like, what the heck are you talking about? What? And then I could escape and get away. Like, ha, ah, sucker. <laughs> I fooled you with my big words. Axoricide. Axoricide. That's, That's the new one. word. I challenge everyone to use it in a sentence this coming week. <laughs> That's easy. I listened to Christy's case on Axoricide. Yeah, and you should go listen to it too. That's what you can say to all your friends. But maybe you should listen to it first and see. <laughs> So this case does take place around Valentine's Day when couples traditionally celebrate their love and devotion for one another. But instead of showering his wife with gifts and dinner, the man we will be discussing decided to murder his wife of 11 years instead. Ooh, I thought it was the seven year itch, not the 11. There isn't a lot of background information on our killer this time. But as with our Halloween killer, William Michael Dennis, remember him? Mm -hmm. We don't need a lot of information. This man was not a victim of his childhood and displayed zero psychopathic traits throughout his life. His oh. murder was fueled by good old-fashioned rage, insecurity, and jealousy. Which I find these ones actually a little bit more scary because they're so unpredictable. Yeah, that is true. You know what? I just find them all scary. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa is a big scaredy cat. <laughs> well, I can't decide if it's more scary if they don't have any risk factors and we can't predict at all. Like this could be just regular Joe Blow off the street. Or if it's scarier that you can actually make a serial killer or a murderer in this case. Yeah, I think something like this sometimes can be scarier. Like, yes, he has his own perceived motive and reasonings for murdering his wife, but we can't blame it on his genetic makeup or his traumatic childhood. Yeah, I don't know which one's scarier. They're both scary, let's face it. Yeah. We don't need to dig deep into his childhood, but we are going to be digging deep into his most shocking actions. This case includes lies, murder, infidelity, dismemberment, and more. Ooh, it so, sounds like a soap opera. It does. So <laughs> viewer discretion advised. It is actually quite the story. 
How much more can you add to that? Oh, just when you think the story's done, there's more. He must really have a vendetta against her. It's one of those cases where we could be done at the end of like murder, but no, it keeps going on. And then he did this. And then he thought it would be a good idea to do this. Oh. Yeah. Now you piqued my interest. You need to tell me about it. Okay. Stephen Grant was born in 1970. He has a sister named Kelly who stood by his side throughout his life, including during his murder trial. Oh. Little is known about his parents. His father was William, or Al, Grant, and was 28 when Stephen was born. William was married three times. He divorced his first wife and then remarried twice after that, but was widowed both times. His second wife died of a brain aneurysm, and his third wife died of a brain tumor in 2006, just one year prior to murder and mayhem striking the family. I could not find information regarding which wife was Stephen's mother, but I'm assuming it was his first wife. But if it was his second wife, both scenarios would be hard on Stephen and his sister. Either scenario would suck for him. Yeah, both scenarios would be hard on him and his sister. Yeah. So you can see then how they would create that bond between each other then. Yeah. If they've been through something traumatic, either a divorce or the death of their mother, then they would be bonded together. For sure. And I just wanted to note that it sounded like Stephen's dad, William, was the one who had a hard time in life, not Stephen. And what happens to him is particularly heartbreaking, which we'll come back to near the end of the case. Oh, Stephen was described as not being very popular while growing up, but there are no public reports of bullying. He was just described as odd and awkward, which could have started his feelings of inadequacy, which will play into the murder. A childhood friend of Stephen's, Ken McCauley, said, quote, He was the guy that you thought would grow up and rob a liquor store and leave his name tag on, and you'd see him on the stupidest criminals. <laughs> oh, that's not nice. Right? He also said, quote, Steve wasn't the most popular kid in the world. He wasn't the best looking. So I guess when I saw his wife, I was like, wow, good job, Steve. I never thought you'd get someone like Tara. Oh, so he married up. He did, definitely. So I figured this might be a good time to introduce Stephen's wife and murder victim, Tara Lynn DeStramp. Tara was born in 1972 in Michigan. She also had a sister, and like Stephen, she seemed to experience a pretty normal upbringing. Friends described Tara as a smart and beautiful, small-town girl with big city dreams. She was a go-getter. Stephen met Tara while she was attending Michigan State University. Stephen had recently dropped out of college to work for former state senator Jack Faxon. The two started out as friends, even though Stephen never gave up trying to win her over. Stephen said, quote, I asked her out and she turned me down. She said she kind of had a boyfriend from up north where she was from. I said, that's like kind of being pregnant. Either he's your boyfriend or not. But I respected that and we were just friends at first. And I totally got cringy vibes from this right from the start. He was basically mansplaining her relationship status to her. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. So if you're a man and you do this, please stop. Mansplaining is a thing. <laughs> if she says she kind of has a boyfriend up north, leave her alone. <laughs> it means it's an undefined relationship and she doesn't want to get with you. Yeah. But you can see how if he's having to chase her, then that could lead into more of his insecurities later on. Yeah, that's true. I never thought of that. He was just trying to discredit the relationship. You know, mm -hmm. whether you're in a relationship or you're not. And it's not always that simple, Stephen. No. Stephen was ultimately able to change their relationship status when Tara's grandmother passed away. She went home to Escanaba for the funeral. Stephen used this opportunity to show Tara how he felt, and I wondered was he caring or swooping in when she was vulnerable. 
he decided to drive to Escanaba to surprise Tara and her family, to be there for Tara, even though her current boyfriend had already gone with her to be a support. Oh, mm-hmm. he was third wheel in it? He was pretty brazen. He just wanted to show up to show her that he cared. Tara was shocked to see him, and Stephen said that with her boyfriend being there, quote, it was awkward, but it wasn't terrible. Yeah, so he just wants to be there for her, but yet he's making it more awkward for her. So who's he really there for? Well, that's what I mean. Was it him doing this out of caring or knew she'd be vulnerable and used it as an opportunity? Or just was thinking totally about himself. He kind of only does think about himself throughout this. Yeah, because really, if you're wanting to be there for somebody, you're not going to make things more awkward for them. Right, exactly. But regardless, he showed up. She was shocked to see him. He said it was a little awkward, but not too terrible. Did he stay? He did. Yeah, see? He did. Yeah. Her boyfriend's there. You leave. You take an exit. No, he stayed. And in fact, Tara's family invited him for dinner with them. (gasps) So he went to the dinner. He did say that he felt out of place. So then he decided to drive home to Lansing. He said that Tara called him the next day and said that she was in love with him. And then the couple started dating. Oh, so it worked. It It paid off. It worked. And if she was just kind of dating the other guy, maybe it wasn't a real serious thing. And he's been trying to chase her and asking her out. And then he shows up and does this grand gesture. Right. I drove all the way because it was a long drive to kind of get there and be there for her. So I guess it was maybe just the push that she needed. I can see how she would view that as being romantic. Right. And it's your college days. You're young. Everyone's figuring it out. You're naive. Yeah. (laughs) That's what Christy means when she says young. (laughs) Some things we can only learn by experience. That's all I'm going to say. It's true. Tara moved in with Stephen a few months later. People would describe them as opposites. Tara was a perfectionist and Stephen was not. Tara continued with school until she earned her bachelor's degree in business and eventually started a fantastic job as a consultant and then system manager at Washington Group International, which was an American corporation that provided integrated engineering, construction, and management services to businesses and governments around the world. So her job was kind of a big deal. In contrast, Stephen had lost his job and was unable to find another one in politics. He said it was because of the 1994 downturn where the Democrats, quote, lost their shirts, making a lot of Democrats unable to work. (laughs) So he's blaming on the Republicans? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like an old argument. (laughs) Right? Stephen looked to his father for help and started to work at his father's shop. He owned a local tool and dye shop in Mount Clemens, which I believe was called USG Babbitt. And when I googled it, it seems like it may still be open. Oh. Stephen and Tara married in 1996. They had a daughter, Lindsay, in November of 2000 and a son, Ian, in November of 2002. So let's fast forward to February of 2007. So their kids are... I think they were like six and four. Six and four. Tara has continued to successfully climb the corporate ladder and is now the main breadwinner for the family. They lived in a nice neighborhood, their children attended private schools, and they drove new cars. Ooh, that sounds like a good life. I would like that lifestyle. Me too. Stephen was a self-proclaimed Mr. Mom and the primary caregiver for their two children. And did he like this role? He did. Okay, good. Yeah, he really did. Nothing wrong with that then. Nope. At this point, Tara traveled for work mostly to Puerto Rico, Monday through Friday. She would come home Friday night for the weekend and then leave again on a jet Monday morning. So she'd be gone for five days and home for two. Stephen took great care of their two children, even coaching soccer. People said he really loved his kids. He was a good parent who was extremely present in their day-to-day lives. 
However, it was hard for Stephen to do the majority of it on his own and watch how successful his wife was becoming. She provided them a very nice lifestyle. He only picked up the odd shift at his father's shop when Tara was home. He said, quote, she's been traveling all over the world for four years. It became difficult, but I learned to deal with it. But sadly, this was not true. It would turn out that he was definitely not okay with it. This situation is reversed for a lot of other people. And you do look at those moms and think, oh, that really sucks that your husband's out of town all the time. So it'd be no different for him. It would be sucky to have to single parent all the time. Oh, for sure. She's flying in on Friday and leaving by Monday morning. So she's not home for a long time. No. And it is hard when you are the primary caregiver. There's so many details that go on in the day in and day out. And you have two small children. You can see how it would be. It would be difficult. It would be definitely difficult. Yeah. Although I'm sure there's lots of single parents out there saying that, man, I would love it if somebody would just be the breadwinner and I can do all the just the day-to-day stuff. Right. And not have to do both. That's true. Regardless, being a parent is hard. Absolutely. If you have help or you don't. And two, there is kind of that traditional way of thinking that the man should be the breadwinner. And no matter how progressive we get, it's kind of ingrained and taught from such an early age that he would have thought that he wasn't fulfilling his role. Right. And that does play a factor. Mm -hmm. When Tara was later reported as missing, Stephen was quoted saying, quote, I've heard comments in the media from people who said Tara must have met with foul play because she would never have left her babies like that. But this is the same person who was gone five days a week. Yes, she was there on weekends, but it wasn't out of the ordinary for her to come in, kiss the babies, and then leave again. Hmm. Eventually, Stephen became suspicious of his wife cheating on him with her boss during the weeks she spent in Puerto Rico. And this was unfounded. I didn't find any evidence that this was true. But he believed it nonetheless. He did, yeah. So that was his frame of mind. Yes. So he felt like when she would go away for the week, it wasn't really like working. It was like she got to have this whole week with her lover and then she had to come home and spend two days with them and then she could go back to Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico where the weather's nice. Yeah. 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 And they're in Michigan where, you know, it's not as nice from what I've heard. (laughs) He believed this so much, however, that he did go to the extreme of installing some type of spyware on her computer to see if she would incriminate herself. Oh, but she never did. Not that I could find. No. Hmm. But this allegation caused his resentment, insecurities, and anger to grow. Oh, I could totally believe it. Have you ever had those dreams where your spouse cheats on you? Yes, and you wake up totally ticked off at them for the whole rest of the day. It didn't matter that it didn't happen at all. (laughs) That was totally make-believe, but you were still angry? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ask my husband. That's happened (laughs) more than a couple of times. This is not happening in a dream. This is happening to him in real life that he's believing it. So you can just imagine how that's going to play over into their relationship. For sure. And if she's in Puerto Rico for that whole week, he can't go and check. It's totally out of his control to find out if it's true or not. Yeah. Because he just has to take her by her word. And that's why trust is so important. Absolutely. And don't cheat on your wives or your husbands in a dream. (laughs) It's not healthy for the relationship. (laughs) But you can see that, like, I'm sure many people have had that experience. And then you can extrapolate what it would be like to actually be living in that mind frame constantly about how angry you would get day after day. Oh, for sure. And so this is starting to play into his motive. Mm -hmm. These feelings of resentment and insecurity and anger, it's starting to build. So now not only is he not the breadwinner, he's not fulfilling his roles. So that would be a huge insecurity. But now he thinks that she's running off with Fabio. Right. (laughs) Fabio. Is that a Puerto Rican name? I don't know. Is (laughs) it Fabio? 
that Italian? <laughs> okay, hold on. I gotta find a Puerto Rican name now. Well, he wasn't Puerto Rican. I think she went like with her boss. It could have totally been Fabio. We'll go with Fabio. <laughs> Fabio. He's on all the Harlequin romance covers. Yes. With yeah. the long hair, no shirt, and the tight jeans. That's right. <laughs> Well, and you could see how if he's doing all the day in and day outs and it seems like she just swoops in for a day and leaves again and he's thinking that she's cheating on him and having more of a vacation all week long, his needs are maybe not feeling like they're being met. And so that resentment would grow. Now, are you talking about sexual needs? Like, did they talk about their sex life and that he wasn't actually? No, I'm just talking about your needs in general, right? That companionship, having a partner at home, you know, help with the kids, you know, maybe the sexualness of it. Well, because I'm thinking from her point of view, if she's flying in and out, that's exhausting. It is. To be away from home all the time. You're never comfortable in a hotel room or wherever you're staying for a week. And then to get home and pack, have to do your laundry, and then you have to be gone again by Monday morning. Yeah. And try to fit in time with your husband and kids. Yeah. That's exhausting. Yeah. So you can see both sides. Yeah. But she was giving them an exceptionally comfortable lifestyle. Like Mm -hmm. she was exceeding at her job to keep that up. She had to travel. Yeah. So there would be power struggles between the couple over who was the boss and who was running the household. I think that would just be a natural progression that he would have to assert his dominance in some area just to make up for his insecurities. And yet she's the one bringing home the paycheck and would feel dominant all the time. Yeah. So it was definitely a power struggle between them. Mm -hmm. After his wife was considered missing, the Detroit News published a series of emails of Stephen venting about his wife's frequent business trips to an ex-girlfriend and accusing her of having an affair. And it was actually the ex-girlfriend who came forward with these emails when she found out that his wife was missing. But it was put in the Detroit News. Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) And in these emails, he was overly friendly with his ex-girlfriend, telling her that he wanted to see her naked and that since she was in nursing school, she could practice giving him a sponge bath. Oh, so he was the one actually setting up an affair. At this point, he was already accusing his wife. So maybe he thought, well, if you're doing it, then I'm going to do it too. Mm -hmm. He doesn't actually have an affair with this lady, but it was an inappropriate exchange. Yeah. You're having an affair, I'm going to have one. And that's, I think, his mindset. And I think sometimes just a natural progression. If your needs aren't being met at home and you don't have a companionship at home, then human beings need companionship. Yeah. Not justifying it at all. No, not at all. But I can see how that would happen. Mm -hmm. About the emails, Stephen tried to say that he was joking when he wrote them. He said, quote, I did say I want to see you naked, but that's because I'm a guy. Men always want to see women naked. Okay, our male listeners. Do you always want to see all your friends naked? Because I'm not really sure that's a thing. But maybe it is. (laughs) He said, quote, those were private emails sent jokingly to an old friend. There are a lot of things people say just kidding around that they wouldn't want to see on the front page of the newspaper. Oh, I can second that. How much do we joke around? And I would never want to see our text on the front (laughs) page of a newspaper. No, especially my text to Melissa. (laughs) I would be horrified. We have to clarify. We were not talking about sexual naked pictures in our text. (laughs) I was not asking her to give me a sponge bath or telling her that I wanted to see her naked. But it was still something that I wouldn't want people to see. So I think that would be horrifying to have that printed on the newspaper for you. (laughs) No, it would be absolutely horrifying to have your text messages just printed in a newspaper. For sure. But I did think it was good of the ex-girlfriend to come forward with them when she found out that his wife was missing because you never know what might help an investigation. Full disclosure. That's right. During the time prior to Tara's murder, Stephen and Tara decided to hire an au pair or a nanny from Germany to help with the kids and chores around the house since Tara had to be gone so much. Their au pair was a beautiful 18 or 19 year old woman named Verena Dirks. 
And her age differed on different accounts, but I don't know if she started out as 18 at the beginning and by the end of the trial, she was 19. That's what I'm thinking, mm-hmm. but I saw sources of both. As Named, a live-in, right? Yes, as oh. their live-in. So first mistake, Stephen was lonely and looking for someone to make him feel wanted. Stephen and Verena would spend most of their time together, and as cliche as it is, they eventually became romantically involved, even reportedly having sex the night before Tara would be killed. Ooh. They had the house to themselves from Monday to Friday, so it was easy to hide their relationship from Tara. It would be. Yeah. That's like the ideal situation for an affair to happen. Oh, for sure. Here, let me invite this young, attractive woman in to live in our house while I am away for a week at a time. Yeah, so neighbors wouldn't even be suspicious because that's why she's there so they couldn't even tell her like hey he's got some young girl on the side at home do you think that neighbors wouldn't be suspicious though i don't know she's their nanny their au pair oh i'm totally suspicious of everybody (laughs) ladies if you're gonna hire a nanny (laughs) make sure she old and ugly (laughs) (laughs) or she's a man Hire the Manny. <laughs> the Manny. Yeah, exactly. It would be interesting to see who actually done the hiring. Yeah, I'm not sure. There wasn't any information on that. But Tara would have been the one paying her. Yeah. So if Tara didn't want her there, it's I'm true. sure she wouldn't have been. Yeah. And that's not to say that this person didn't come without credentials. For sure. And Tara and her husband are in their 30s. And you're probably not thinking your husband's going to go for an 18-year-old. Yeah. Because to me, it would be almost like hiring a babysitter at that age. It would be. Yeah. But they are playing house. They're spending all their time Monday to Friday together. It's just the two of them. They talk a lot. It said that they had started to just kind of joke around sexually at the beginning. And then one thing led to the other. And it seemed like it was kind of a new relationship. Like it had been taking place about four to six weeks Mm. before the murder occurred. Yeah. But he did sleep with her the very night before. Wow. Andrea Billups, who wrote a book called A Slain in the Suburbs about this case, said that Stephen was not living his dream of working in politics. Their public face seemed a lot more normal than it might have been simmering inside those doors. And what was simmering was heading towards a rapid boil, and it was Stephen's growing resentment that was fanning the flames. Ooh. Unfortunately, things would come to a head on the frightful night of February 9th, 2007. Oh, I thought you said this was a Valentine's Day murder. It is. Something significant happens on Valentine's, but she is actually murdered on February 9th. That's like five days. Yeah. (laughs) But right now we're on February 9th, 2007. It was a Friday and Tara had come home that day from her work week in Puerto Rico. The kids were tucked in bed and Tara and Stephen were in their bedroom. Stephen was naked as he was getting ready for bed and Tara was unpacking from her trip. Tara tells Stephen that she has to return to work a day early, on Sunday, instead of her usual Monday morning. The couple begin to argue. Stephen is frustrated because his wife just got home and will now be leaving earlier than expected. Their fight escalates to the point of Tara slapping Stephen across the face. Stephen hits her back and she falls to the floor. Having reached her last straw, Tara tells Stephen that it is over between them. Stephen said, quote, she fell. I know she banged the back of her head on the floor and then said something like, that's it. I'm going to take the kids. You're going to be effing homeless. You're a piece of crap. All of Stephen's pent up feelings of being emasculated, unappreciated and bitterness towards his wife erupted at once and he does the unthinkable. With their children asleep in their rooms, Stephen gets on top of Tara and begins to strangle her with his bare hands. He said, quote, I choked her. I put my hands on her neck and choked her. She finally grabbed my hand at one point, but it was too late then. I couldn't stop then. I knew I was going to prison. I panicked. 
He said that it seemed like it took her a moment to realize what was happening before trying to stop him. So it didn't seem like she fought back at first, like was kind of yeah, startled. Yeah, she's probably totally shocked. Yeah, she had hit her head. I'm not sure what was going through her mind. Once she did start to fight, she looked her attacker, the father of her children, in the eyes. This bothered Stephen, and so being the spineless dirtbag that he is, he grabbed a nearby piece of clothing like a t-shirt and covered her face with it so he wouldn't have to see her face while he was killing her. And he still continues to strangle her. Yeah. And with one t- hand, he's holding her down. Well, I don't know if she probably couldn't get the t-shirt or whatever it was off of her face, so he mm-hmm. probably was holding her with one hand, threw the t-shirt over her face, and then kept on strangling her. Yeah, but he would have had to let go with one hand to grab the... You would have had to. Yeah. yeah. And it did take more than four minutes for <sighs> Stephen to strangle the life out of his 34-year-old wife, Tara Grant. Wow. And I think that's a misconceived notion that strangulation is quick. No, it's not. It's not. It can take minutes like that. So it is a terrible way for someone to be murdered. Stephen knew that the next thing he had to do was get rid of the body. He said, quote, I wrapped something, a belt around her neck. I think it was my brown leather belt. I knew I couldn't carry her, so I wrapped that around her neck and I used it to basically <gasps> pull her down the stairs. No. Isn't that terrible? That is awful. So he put a leash around her and yanked her down the stairs. Yeah, because he knew she'd be too hard to carry down the stairs, so he just drug her down the stairs by her neck with his brown belt. Hmm. Stephen uses the belt to drag Tara all the way to the garage. He backs up her vehicle to the garage and after a struggle, finally gets her body into the back of the vehicle. At one point, he dropped her body. He said, quote, I dropped her. It was the most disgusting noise. It just sounded like dropping a watermelon on the cement. I knew then that I had killed her. And I hope that sound haunts him. That's gross. Yeah. Stephen goes back into the house to get dressed. And soon after, their au pair, Verena, comes home. Where was she? She was out for the night. She had the night off. Yeah. Well, it's Friday night. His wife is coming home. Yeah. So I don't know if they gave her the weekends off, possibly, but she still lived there. Yeah. Stephen starts to fabricate the story that he and Tara had gotten into a fight and that she had stormed out and left him. He wanted to gain sympathy from his mistress. Of course he would. Dirtbag. Knowing that he would have to cover his tracks, Stephen starts to call Tara's cell phone and leaves multiple messages. And I listened to recordings of part of these calls and he really puts on a performance acting all concerned for her and then frustrated, telling her to basically just let him know if she is okay. He would also later call Tara's boss and her family to express his concerns about her taking off. That's similar to the Dustin Duthie case where he was acting all worried, texting, trying to cover his tracks. Right. Even calling Taylor's grandma. Yeah. The next day, Stephen was faced with getting rid of Tara's body. She was still in the back of her own vehicle in the freezing February Detroit weather. He says goodbye to his kids, most likely leaving them with his mistress, and then drives her body to his father's machine shop. Stephen gets his wife's body out of the vehicle and sets her on top of a bunch of tarps that he had spread out over the floor. Having access to multiple tools, Stephen proceeds to dismember Tara. He cut her mostly at the joints and reportedly had to stop to vomit throughout this experience. And we do find this sometimes where it does make them sick doing the things that they're doing, but they keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Once he has her in pieces, he wraps the parts in plastic and fills a Rubbermaid tote to the top with Tara. He leaves her body in the shop and returns home. And I thought, what would that even have been like to go home and act like he didn't just chop up his wife? Especially if it affected him so significantly that he's having physical manifestations. Yeah. Like he's puking. Yeah. Did he come home and just go to bed? Did he go to the park with his kids? Like, what do you do after something like that? So crazy. 
The next morning, Stephen grabs his kids' sled and heads out to dispose of the body pieces. He picks up the Rubbermaid tote from his father's shop and drives out to Stony Creek Park, a park that he and his family like to go to. It was well-treed and covered in snow at the time. Stephen places the tote on top of the sled so it's easier to transport. And at one point... His kid's sled. His kid's sled. So he's put his wife's body in the tote on top of the kid's sled. And at one point, he is at the top of a hill when the sled gets away from him and the tote filled with his wife's body parts starts barreling down the hill out of his control. (gasps) Oh, no. I can't even imagine. (laughs) Eventually, the tote tips over and the contents spill out. Onto the snow. Yes. Onto the crisp white snow. You can imagine what that would look like. Oh. And even that feeling like all of a sudden it gets away from you and it's sliding down the hill. <laughs> You're running after it. Yeah. Oh. But what's especially disturbing is how Stephen describes this. He almost tries to make it seem comical, like a story you'd share while out with friends. Oh, yeah, it's slapstick. Yeah. He said, quote, it was like Keystone Cops. The sled took off and now I'm chasing after the sled that has my wife's cut up body in it down a hill. I finally got it stopped when it fell over and it broke. So now all these pieces have now fallen all over the place. I looked up what Keystone Cops was since I wasn't familiar with it, and it's a program that aired from 1912 to 1917 about a bunch of humorously incompetent policemen. It's a silent slapstick comedy with upbeat music playing, and it kind of gave me like the Three Stooges vibe, Mm -hmm. and so I can't even imagine how you would describe this experience this way. He just hacked up his wife. Not only did he kill her, but he just hacked her up in his dad's shop, so he probably does have some kind of surreal feeling about it, no? Oh, for sure. And then relating it to something else that's not real makes sense. What came to my mind after researching this part was the quote that I shared from his school friend who said he was the guy that he thought (laughs) would grow up and rob a liquor store and leave his name tag on and you'd see him on the stupidest criminals. Yeah, he is a stupid criminal. (laughs) (laughs) And here he is chasing the sled down with body parts falling over. It's the most absurd thing that even happened. Yeah. And then it spills out. Broke the tote. It would have left such a mess behind. And then even the sled, because trying to put it all back on the sled. It would be slippery. You know how when you go sledding and you try to sit back on the sled and it's got some snow on it that you slide all over the place? It would be slippery. Yeah. So Stephen gathers the scattered parts and buries them in shallow graves around the park. He was hoping that the nearby animals would find them and help him to get rid of the evidence. It was reported that he moved the mutilated pieces multiple times to multiple locations. Because they could probably track his footprints in the snow and the blood. (laughs) Well, it takes a while. So there could have been fresh snow over top of that. But maybe Mm. he buried it in one spot and then was like, no, that would actually be better over here. Or maybe he'd stand (laughs) back so I can kind of see that. I'm not sure. I don't know. But he did move them around to different spots multiple times, it said. Stephen said, quote, I did a very, very bad job of hiding anything. It's right there in the open. So he admits, yeah, I didn't do a very good job. But he was hoping that the animals would leave just the bones and there would be less evidence to find. So he didn't want them to be dug too deep. He wanted it to be shallow so the animals could dig them up easily, but that people walking by couldn't see them. Hmm. And are there a lot of animals in this area? I'm not sure. But it sounds like they live in kind of a suburban area. But I mean, even in the big city that we live close to, there can be like cougars and like yeah, that's true. that kind of stuff show up. Yeah. 
With Tara's body now disposed of, Stephen decided that his next step would be to report her missing to the authorities and come up with a lie in attempts to quite literally get away with murder. Mm. Stephen had already told his two young children that their mother had left them. Five days after murdering his wife, on February 14th, Valentine's Day of 2007, Stephen reported his wife missing. So here's your Valentine's Day. It took him five days? Oh, but he's got to build the story that she left and now he doesn't know where she is. Right. And I wondered if he waited for Valentine's Day so he would get more sympathy. It's a day of love after all and his wife, the love of his life, is missing. Oh. So I think he was strategic in waiting till Valentine's Day to report her missing. And now he has to wait for the animals to help him out. Right. So he needed to give it a few days too. Stephen tells his local law enforcement about the fight that he had with his wife on the night of February 9th. He tells them that they fought over her having to go back to work a day early. He told them he was upset during the fight, but that their fights never ended with fists. He said she would yell and he would just get quiet. After their fight, he overheard her telling someone on the phone that she would be right out. Stephen said, quote, before she left, the last words she said to me were, don't forget to take my truck in on Monday for repairs, he said. That really took the wind out of my sails. She was telling me that's all I was. It was like, you be the valet and take my car in. So he's making up this total story. Yeah, but he's telling them like the true fight that they had. And maybe this was a conversation that they had. Yeah, maybe. Because he does seem to not really fabricate what they were fighting about or anything like that. Stephen then said that he watched through the garage door, Tara getting into a dark car and leaving, and that that was the last time that he saw her. He said, quote, all I could do was close the garage door. I was done. I was tired of all the bickering about travel, and I gave up. Sounds like a believable story. It really does. And he's keeping some truth in the story, too. Mm-hmm. And he probably did feel that way, that he was done, and he was tired of fighting about her traveling, and he gave up. <laughs> well, he didn't give up. He killed her. Yeah. Stephen again tries to play the sympathy card when he tells police, quote, she left the house angry. My biggest concern was that I was going to have to explain to the kids the next day why their mother wasn't going to be there like she said she would. And I was thinking, what? Their mother isn't going to be there like she said she would because you strangled her to death and then viciously disposed of her. You dirtbag. Yeah. And I wonder if it was all this extra stuff that he added in later that made the police start paying more attention to him. Yeah, possibly. And actually, he could have had that concern, you know, after the fact, like, now what am I going to tell the kids? Mm -hmm. So there could be some truth to that statement, too. So he's a truthful dirtbag. He just spins it. (laughs) Yeah, manipulates it in his favor. The next two weeks, Stephen tries to win an Academy Award by doing public interviews pleading for his wife's safe return. The videos are sickening. He acts overly dramatic and knowing what we know, it's truly disturbing. He's full on like crying, blubbery mess, high pitched voice. He's over the top. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. There is no Academy Award coming his way. Police also held daily press conferences while searching for Tara. So this case quickly became highly publicized and gained national coverage. We talk about why some cases get a lot of media coverage, and I think it was because of all his media appearances. Author Andrea Billups said, quote, It was a big deal because, frankly, attractive, well-educated executives didn't go missing in the Detroit suburbs. Rightfully so, it seemed like the police don't quite buy Stephen's story right from the start. The first suspect is always the husband. It's true. And I didn't put this in here, but Stephen actually makes a comment about that, how, yeah, normally I would suspect the husband as well. And he mentions a case that he felt that way. It's like, but that is not the case here. But it is. But it is. 
Detective McLean said, quote, when we first got to the house, Stevens very nervous. He was very fidgety. He was trying to be over cooperative. And the more questions we started asking him, the more nervous he became. Hmm. They pulled him over the next day after he filed Tara's missing persons report for driving with a suspended license and arrested him. Stephen claims that they did this just to be able to question him more about Tara's disappearance. But the police denied the public allegation. That's pretty crafty. It is. I liked it. Yeah. And they were well within their rights if he had a suspended license. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was smart. They probably went back looking for a reason to arrest him, right? Yeah. Because how would they know? Just randomly they're going to pull him over? No. I feel like they did do that on purpose, which I think is great. Yeah. Yeah. Crafty is good. And what Stephen needs to realize, too, is this is his first murder. This is not their first missing person or murder investigation. They know what to look for when people are being suspicious. So he's probably sending all the wrong body language to the police. He (laughs) was. Yep. He was not playing it cool. When police asked why he didn't report her missing right away, he said it was because this wasn't the first time that she had done this, which again is plausible. Mm -hmm. Police stated that Stephen was uncooperative during the early investigation and would not answer many questions and what he was saying didn't match up. So once they hauled him in and started to investigate, he was becoming uncooperative. Okay. Stephen had suggested that Tara likely went back to Puerto Rico to be with her lover, but investigators could see that she never used an airline, her passport hadn't been used since the day she went missing, and her credit cards and her cell phone hadn't been used. Stephen did agree to take a polygraph test if it was administered by a third party and not by the police. He did take this polygraph, but it came back as inconclusive. Hmm. Eventually, the police caught a break in the case. A woman was out walking through the park where Stephen scattered his wife's remains, and she came across a suspicious bag stuffed into a tree. Inside, police found gloves, metal shavings, and blood that would prove to be Tara's. This discovery changed the course of the investigation from a missing person report to now a possible homicide. Is it bad that I'm like totally thinking, how could he have gotten away with it? (laughs) (laughs) Seeing he could have driven around using her credit card at different places, but then they can track his vehicle too. Right. We're in the world of tracking. You can't get away with murder. That's right. Is what you're telling me. (laughs) The truth comes out. (laughs) Learning about this discovery, Stephen started to panic. He knew that police would be searching that park and discover his wife's pieces. Trying to avoid arrest, Stephen goes back to the park and tries to collect her body parts, again putting them into a Rubbermaid tote. He first took the tote to his father's shop, but then got worried that someone would discover it. So he brought it to his house and stored it in his garage next to a pile of his children's toys. Oh, isn't that creepy? They don't go out and try to play with their toys, do they? No. Okay, good. But there's pictures of it. There's this Rubbermaid tote. And then right next to it is this pile of, it's more like outside toys and stuff. But there's pieces of their mom right there next to their toys. That's disturbing. It is. Detective Pam McLean said, quote, he first removed it from the park and then took it to his father's business and he put it on top of the office area. It remained there for approximately a day, at which time he moved it because he was afraid it was going to start smelling. And then that's when he took it to his garage. As luck would have it, the very next day, after bringing the tote back to his home on March 2nd, the police showed up unexpectedly at the Grant residence with a search warrant. Was it really that unexpected? (laughs) 
Well, she went missing on February 9th. This is now March 2nd. They already looked through his home once when he first reported her missing. But they've just found her blood. And so now they have to search for more evidence in the house where she was last seen. Like that's just a normal progression in an investigation. So I don't think it's (laughs) shocking that they showed up with a warrant. Oh, it's not. But he was not expecting it. It was unexpected for him. He was worried about them finding her body parts in the woods. In reality, he should have left them there. That's right. Right? Collects them, takes them to his dad's shop, then is like, oh, what if they start smelling inside because it's warm in the shop? Yeah. So then he gets them to bring them home. I'm assuming he needed some time to figure out what he was going to do. And then, bang, the police are knocking on his door. (laughs) So can you imagine what went through Stephen's mind as he opened the door and they're like, hey, we're here with a search warrant? He had his name badge on that day. (laughs) Yep. Stupid criminal. (laughs) Stephen casually let the officers into his home, but soon asked them if he had to be there or if he could go walk his dog. The police told him he didn't have to stay while they conducted their search. So Stephen exited his house and made a run for it. So Stephen went to his unsuspecting neighbor and asked to borrow his truck, which gave him a getaway vehicle. Stephen was not being detained at the time, so he was free to leave. While inspecting the garage, one of the officers noticed that the newly placed Rubbermaid had not been in the garage the first time that they had looked around in the residence after Tara was reported missing. And I thought there was good police work on this one, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, it probably wasn't as dusty as all the other stuff that sits in your garage, right? Possibly. Detective McLean said, quote, We were all standing in the garage and my partner noticed this bin and it looked a little out of place. And he opened it up and he could see that there was a lot of plastic in there. And he kind of poked at it and he could feel a little give. And he's like, that does not feel right. Inside the bag, detectives found the clothed partial remains of Tara Grant. It was basically just her torso from the neck to the top of her thighs, face up. She was wearing a bra, underwear, and part of a pair of pants. Needless to say, a manhunt for Stephen Grant was immediately put into place. They're probably like, oh, crap, he just left. (laughs) Where's the dog? (laughs) Yeah, I don't even know if he took the dog with him, to be honest. Maybe he didn't even have a dog. I don't know. It only took two days from their grisly discovery for the police to locate Stephen. Stephen used his cell phone to call his sister to say goodbye, which led the police right to him. He was in northern Michigan's Wilderness State Park, just over 200 miles away. He had taken liquor and pills with him along with a razor blade, making investigators believe that he had intended to kill himself. He had also written letters to his children and purchased a toy gun. Experts believed that the toy gun was in case he got caught by the police, he could aim the gun at them and they would shoot him down. Stephen was found in a poor state. He was laying under a tree and had no outer clothing on to protect him from the frigid temperatures. Not even shoes. Where were his shoes? I do not think his mental state was well. No. At this point, he's planning to kill himself. So yeah. maybe he did strip down, took off his jacket and shoes because he was found just with indoor clothing on. Maybe he didn't have the nerve to actually kill himself. So he was trying to let the elements do it. Possibly. He was only semi-conscious and he was seeing people and talking to trees at that point. He was taken into custody and then airlifted by helicopter to Northern Michigan Hospital in Petoskey to be treated for hypothermia. While in the hospital on March 5th, Stephen came clean and confessed to the police. The next day, he was released from the hospital and formally charged with count one homicide, which is premeditated first degree murder, and count two dismemberment and or mutilation of a dead body. Stephen denied that his crime was premeditated, so the case went to trial. The media continued to eat up this story. Larry King Live and Court TV both covered the murder and the investigation. During the investigation, police found 11 more body parts. Three were never recovered. They also found some of the saw blades that Stephen had used to cut up Tara's body. 
some of them still having her flesh on them. In his dad's shop? Yeah. I'm assuming that's where they found oh, them. Oh, that's gross. Police were also able to determine that the Grant's German au pair had nothing to do with the murder. Mm. Stephen tried to discredit and shame his deceased wife. He said at one point, quote, I was a better mom than Tara was. There's no other way to put it. I was the mom in the house. She was gone all the time. If the kids needed someone to take them to swimming or school or soccer practice, I took them. Congratulations. You yeah. were a parent. <laughs> right. That was my thought too. Um, That's your job as a dad. Yeah. If they need something, you should be there for them. That's right. But he had this resentment, right? Mm-hmm. The prosecutor described Stephen Grant as, quote, evil personified. Tara's sister, Alicia Standerfer, said about Stephen during the trial, quote, he's so much of a coward. He doesn't even look at me in the eye in the courtroom. It was reported that Stephen's sister also attended the trial. And I thought it would be hard for both families. We talk a lot about just the victim's families at the trial. But if your family member had committed this heinous crime, that would be hard to sit through too. Yeah. I think that you would even feel a bit of responsibility. You would feel shame. You would feel sorry. You would still care about your family member who committed these things. It would be such a torn emotion, I feel like. And there would still be that protective urge. And yeah. It would yeah. be difficult for both sides of the family. I agree. It really would. The jury had to listen to Stephen's graphic three-hour recorded confession of murdering Tara Grant. The German au pair also testified. On December 21st, 2007, a jury found Stephen guilty of second-degree murder. They could not agree that his actions were premeditated, and I honestly don't really think that they were. I don't think they were either. I was no. shocked, actually, that they were going for premeditation. He was sentenced on February 21st, 2008, almost exactly a year after killing his wife. The defense was seeking a charge of 15 to 25 years, but Judge Diane Drzinski gave him a sentence of 50 to 80 years. Wow! Plus time for the dismemberment charge which was six to ten years but that would be served concurrently so it didn't actually add time to his sentence not that it would really matter when you're given 50 to 80 years and so when's he eligible for parole in 50 years wow yes that's a harsh sentence it is for second degree murder yeah you see lots of first degree murders that don't get that harsh of a sentence right well and this is what the judge says about it she called stephen's actions quote demonic manipulative barbaric and dishonest all those interviews he did with the media oh for sure he totally shot himself in the foot doing that Stephen tried to appeal his conviction and sentencing he argued that the police did not obtain his confession lawfully since he was recovering in the hospital from hypothermia and exposure at the time and he felt like the jury was swayed because of the wide media coverage of his case pre-trial Thankfully, the Michigan Supreme Court found that his trial was not unduly prejudiced by pretrial publicity and that he was not denied access to an attorney before making his confession. And I think that it's kind of karmatic that Stephen felt like his trial was unfair from all the pretrial media coverage when he was the one instigating all that coverage. So again, that bit him in the butt. And it makes me wonder too that did he go out and put himself out into the elements so that he could later then play insane or say that they could forced his confession because he knew that he would need medical treatment like do you think there was any forethought to that because it was self-imposed like he went out into the bush I think it was more he was suicidal Mm -hmm. I think it was genuine that he was wanting to die because he called his sister to say goodbye he didn't care that the police were going to track him he wrote goodbye letters to his two children he had the alcohol and pills he had razor blades he'd bought the toy gun I think he absolutely was wanting to kill himself and nothing that I could find said that he was trying to go with an insanity plea okay he was pleading guilty to second degree murder he Mm -hmm. didn't change that plea but then he was appealing the sentencing and the conviction 
afterwards. I don't think he was expecting. I'm sure his defense lawyers were saying, yeah, 15, he might be out in 15 years. And he's thinking, okay, I'm still going to be young enough. I'll still see my kids grow up a bit. Yeah. And then when he got 50 to 80 years, your tune is changing. I find sentencing so interesting because there doesn't seem to be any standard to the sentencing at all. I know there is, but then it's totally up to the judge. And it's so different from state to state or from country to country that sentencing is so interesting because it's a heinous crime, but we've heard a lot worse. Absolutely. So you're right. It is super interesting and concerning sometimes why it varies so much. Yeah. So currently, Stephen is serving his sentence at the Bellamy Creek Correctional Facility in Ionia, Michigan, and has a pretty good chance of dying in prison one day, I would say. Yeah, with a 50-year sentence? Right. That's a good guess. Yeah. But if he makes it to 90, he could get out. (laughs) (laughs) But prison life is hard. Yeah. A very well-known psychologist, Dr. Ellen Lippman, made a public statement regarding Stephen Grant. Have you heard of Dr. Lippman before? Yeah, he's on the news all the time. Yeah, he is one of the top dogs of psychologists. Mm. He has a huge list of credentials, but one of those is that he's the director of the Center for the Study of Violence. Knows what he's talking about when he makes a comment. Right. So to paraphrase a little, he said there is actually a kind of crazy that is understandable logic that prior to February 9th, Stephen felt increasingly frustrated, powerless and angry. His wife was trying to be the boss, but he felt like he should be the boss of the family. He says, quote, you have a guy of limited intelligence, of limited emotional ability, who is becoming increasingly frustrated, increasingly angry, sitting there at home alone with the kids while his wife is flying around with nothing but time to become angrier and angrier and angrier. February 9th comes around. She comes home. There is a blow up. This man of limited capacity, this psychopath, blows up and now he starts to cover his crime. He's a frustrated, angry, psychopathic, sane man. And I thought that was a good way to describe him. Yeah. And we've had that conversation before. It's just because you're a psychopath doesn't mean that you're insane. Right. Before we end, I want to give you a little information on the aftermath of the trial. Remember how I said we'd come back to Stephen's father? Mm-hmm. Six months after the trial on June 13th, 2008, he sadly committed suicide by gunshot wound to the head. He was pronounced dead at Port Huron Hospital. A man with a neighboring tool shop stated that William never recovered from the actions of his son and the destruction to the family. He fell into a deep depression and was trying to obtain visitation rights concerning Stephen and Tara's two children, his grandchildren. They were with Tara's sister, Alicia. And I just found this heartbreaking. It is just more victims, right? Yeah. There was a custody battle concerning who should become the children's legal guardians between Stephen's sister, Kelly, and Tara's sister, Alicia. And just for time, I won't go into the court details. But ultimately, Tara's sister, Alicia, was given legal guardianship of the children, and her and her husband adopted the kids. They raised the kids along with their other two children in Southern Ohio. Sadly, it does not sound like Stephen's sister is given much access to the children, if at all. At least at the beginning, and I'm not sure if that has changed, but I do hope so. Yeah, to remove both their parents and then their aunt, which if she was close to their father, they probably had regular contact with her. Yeah, and And she does make comments during the custody battle about how she has not been given hardly any time, that she'd only seen the children twice, and the grandpa was trying to fight to be able to have visitation rights with his children too. So it sounds like, and I don't want to say for sure, but it sounds like they were just wanting to cut 
cut off Stephen's family from the children. Which is sad because they didn't have anything to do with it. They no. were victims of the situation as well. Absolutely. But then I'm trying to put myself in her sister's shoes. And would you want them to have anything to do with who murdered your sister? I would have to do what I felt was best for the children. If they were going to be a negative influence and try to justify mm-hmm. Stephen's actions, then maybe no. But if it's just another person who's going to love and care for them, then yeah. They've yeah. already lost their mother. They've lost one of the people who love them the most in the world. Why not have more people that love them? Yeah. About the children, Alicia said that Ian has his mother's deep brown eyes and that Lindsay inherited Tara's super curly dark hair. She said, quote, Lindsay is a little Tara, her personality. I never expected that to come out so vividly. Even though she is her own person, I definitely see Tara in her all the time. No doubt. Ian is a really loving kid, and that was Tara. The children reportedly have no desire to see their father. When younger, the children came up with names for their father. Lindsay referred to him as nothing, and Ian called him dirt. Oh. Which I felt meshed right with our dirt bag diagnosis. So well done, Ian. <laughs> she said it was unprovoked that they just kind of came up with these names for their dad. Tara's remaining family have tried to make some good come out of her death. They work with Turning Point, which is a domestic violence shelter and outreach organization in Macomb County. They raise money and awareness each year with a five kilometer walk in Tara's memory. The family attend the walk, and you can watch an interview that the children gave now that they are older during one of these events. But was there a lot of documented domestic violence between the two of them? No, there was no physical violence. Alicia does talk about these power struggles that he was trying to be controlling. Mm -hmm. And so kind of hindsight stuff looking back. How at first she thought he was okay, but there was maybe some signs. But it wasn't overt. No, it was definitely not an obvious domestic violence situation. But she did die from exoricide, right? At the hands of her husband. That is violent. And so (laughs) dying at the hands of your husband is the ultimate act of domestic violence. Right. By all accounts, the children seem to have grown up to be wonderful humans, despite going through unspeakable tragedy as children. Lindsay in an interview spoke about how beneficial counseling has been for her. Alicia, the aunt, said, quote, They are doing remarkably well. I think they will both always have residual things come up at different times in their lives. I've seen it. I've seen things that spark PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder or anxiety flare-ups. There's no predicting when those things will happen, but outsiders comment all the time about how well-adjusted these kids are. And that is the cruel and twisted story of an insecure and egotistical Mr. Mom Dirtbag turned ruthless killer, Stephen Grant. Happy Valentine's Day. Yes. And you're right. We didn't need to know anything about his childhood because he made all of those decisions on his own and he didn't have to have any history to make those decisions. No. Other than being a stupid criminal. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe feeling a little insecure, being awkward. But who isn't? Who doesn't ever feel that way growing up? Right? Or even now as adults. At some point, you can't use those as excuses. Because that's just everybody else's experience as well. Yeah. You got to buck up, cowboy. Take responsibility. (laughs) (laughs) But that's it for us this week. Thanks for hanging in while I told you the story of Stephen Grant. And we hope your Valentine's Day goes much better. Much, much better. And we hope your whole week is a good one. See ya. Bye. Music is just the soundtrack to our lives. (laughs) That sounded like an inspirational quote. Oh, really? (laughs) I could make that on a pretty little meme. (laughs) Just stop it (laughs) and start over. 
Oh, you moved your Dang mic. It. Dang it, Grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want that to mean I'm a psychopath. All of a sudden, all of my thoughts just went out of my head. <laughs> Is there affairs? Yes. Ooh. I said infidelity. <laughs> yeah, you did say that. I wonder if there's a fancy word for scaredy cat. <laughs> Is he dead? Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> I would like that. <laughs> I'm going to create my own sport and call it shocker. If you do something wrong, you get shocked. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? Remember, you can't shake your head. We can't see that. <laughs> okay, we digress. <laughs> the visuals that I've been getting today. Oh, my Lanta. Oh. This is for my oldest daughter. Oh. Don't hit me in the face with your bike. <laughs> <laughs> she can't even get it, can't out, even get it out. That's like our conversation earlier. I think I grunted. <laughs> and I knew what you were saying. Manipula- manipula- manipulative. Um, it, there, it, I own ya. I own ya. Ten dollars. I own you. Oh. I own ya. You do own a piece of my heart, Melissa. <laughs> Suck it up, Buttercup. Yeah, that's right. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know? And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.